Welcome to the Oceans Church Podcast. We pray that as you join us for this message, you are blessed, encouraged and empowered to bring the Kingdom of Heaven into your spheres of life. All right. Good evening, everybody. It's so good to be here. Thank you for being my Albany family. Um, and, and this is my first time south of Bunbury. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's great to be here. So, so here's what we're going to do tonight. A couple things. First of all, if, uh, if you want to follow an actual Bible, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to get to that in just a second. If not, we've created some really easy to follow along with slides. Um, that, that's number one. Number two, Pastor Schaefer and the team here have asked me to put aside a small amount of time at the end of this to do some live Q&A. Now, assuming they still want me to do this, considering the largest of the turnout, uh, we'll do it, okay? So, but here's the thing about Q&As. Q&As are almost entirely determined by the quality of the queue, all right? So let's make some rules around what a good queue is. A good queue, first of all, is shortly stated. So you need to be able to state your question in about 20 seconds or less. If you can't do it in 20 seconds or less, think through it. Uh, about how you could do it in 20 seconds or less. That's number one. N- number two, a good question is a question, not a statement. Um, n- nobody wants anybody just standing up spouting off their opinion. That's boring, and for tonight, we don't care about that. That's number two. N- number three, a good question is mutually edifying, okay? So we think, okay, I think the whole room would benefit from this, right? Like, I do care about your Aunt Susie's mole on her back of her knee. I do, but not tonight, right? We want the whole room to care about our question. And number four, it's non-antagonistic. We're under a mandate from Philippians chapter two to do all things without grumbling or disputing with one another. A dispute is anytime someone starts with their conclusion. So if you start with your conclusion, I will kindly and humbly let you have your conclusion. I am 47 years old. Let's remove that mystery. I am 47 years old, and I have never once ever been able to shift someone if they started with their flag in the ground, all right? So if you start with your flag in the ground, I'll just graciously let you have your flag because that's just a waste of breath, all right? So if we have non-antagonistic, mutually edifying questions at the end, I'll be happy uh, to help facilitate that journey. That's number two. Number three, um, after this is over in that foyer, we have a table set up with our teaching resources on it um, in audio and video and USB. Um, The reason we carry that around with us is because we make a lot of money from it, okay? And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so what we use the profit from that for is to fund our missions in the world. The missions we choose to make our thing is we have three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that works with gang members, drug addicts, prostitutes. We work with the government there in Cape Town to be a viable diversion option to Polesmore Prison, right? Because we think it's inappropriate to tell someone you shouldn't be a prostitute if that's their only option to feed their family. What we need to do is give them options. We need to give them education. We need to give them dignity. We need to be the source of compassion and education. The, the theological word for that is resurrection. Resurrection is when you come into someone's life and their tomorrow is never a repeat of yesterday. That's called despair. And so we want to do that. Now, I would tell you about the new stuff on the table, but because it's my first time here, it's all brand new. All right. So going out there, there's a whole lot of things that, that will enhance your life. Um, I've done all just all kinds of stuff. So if you could see, uh, Robin runs my, all of my stuff 
all around the world, and um, she's here with me because I was in a really, really, really big church last week, and so I couldn't do it. And so she said, "Oh, no, I'll come down to Albany with you." And uh, so she's she's out there, um, and I'll I'll be out there with her. And all I'm asking you to do is let me to put some let me put something in your hands that'll change the way you look at God, Scripture, the Bible, and others. And you put something in our hands that helps us feed, clothe, shelter, educate mentally handicapped kids. I think it's a pretty good deal. Okay. Um, now, because I've got to pack that up, I, don't, I would just ask, if you don't want anything, God bless. If you want something, if you would do so in the first 15 minutes, that'd be awesome. Just because we have to pack it down and we're on a plane at 6.30 in the morning to go speak for Ocean's Church in Perth, all right? And so if you could, if you could just be kind to us in that way. Um, also, I'd like to just say thank you to everybody for coming out tonight, especially if you're over 40. I, I really appreciate it. Um, if you're over 40, we don't do things outside after seven. Like, well, we lunatics, but you're here. And so I'm gonna honor, I'm gonna honor your time. Uh, this message will go to right around eight o'clock or so and then, um, and then we'll do a Q&A, and you'll get home by 8.30, 8.45 or so, in time to watch a rerun of NCIS, because all the writers are on strike, and it doesn't matter anyway, all right? So, <laughs> so about uh, a little over a year ago, um, I, was on, I was on the road to Chinchilla. I'm going to tell you why we're going to talk about this tonight. Chinchilla is in the middle of nowhere in Queensland. And there was a, a PhD in social anthropology on, and he was talking simply about the anthropological responses to pandemics. He went back through the last eight great pandemics of the earth, and he said, here's how human beings respond at the end of pandemics. Now, he said a lot, but here's what's important to us. He said that in every pandemic in the history of the world, what you see after the pandemic wanes off is you see a three-year rush of people wanting to be regrounded in spirituality. A three-year period of time. So what that means is from the middle of the middle of 2023 to the middle of 2026, what we should see is a once-in-a-lifetime rush of people wanting to be regrounded in faith. Now, for us, that means we get the opportunity once in a lifetime to reclaim the beauty of certain words that have lost their beauty, right? Words like Christian. The word Christian's not beautiful. And it's not the left's fault, and it's not the woke's fault. It's our fault. We control the narrative around what people think about Christians. And Christians have allowed themselves to be cornered, specifically on social media, around things that we should not be known for. A Christian, hold on to something, is not an expert in climate change. We're not. We don't want to be known for that. A Christian is not called to be known for their opinion about climate or health or politics or sex or especially amateur predictions of doom, okay? We're not meant to be known for any of that. Have whatever conviction you want to have about climate and politics and health and doom. Have whatever conviction you want. Live by those convictions. Have moral authority. Don't be a hypocrite. Put your conviction on a flag if you want. Just make it a little toothpick flag. Make the main flag be our belief in Jesus and our love for our fellow man, all right? But Jesus, the Christianity is not about anything. If you'd rather be known as a liberal voter than a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known as a labor voter instead of a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known for your opinions about climate instead of being a follower of Jesus, I think you've missed the point. If you'd rather be known for your opinions about end times instead of your following of Jesus, I think we've missed the point. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reclaim the beauty of the word Christian. A Christian is someone who wants to see the world how Jesus saw the world, see God how Jesus saw God, and apply Scripture the way Jesus applied Scripture. Christianity is not about being biblical. Christianity is about being right about how Jesus applied the Bible, not being right about every single verse. So I want to talk to you about Jesus, because words matter less than how we picture words working. It's possible to say something true 
that creates an untrue imagination of how that word works. Let me prove it, okay? I'm gonna say something true. It will definitely create an untrue imagination of how it works, all right? One day you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you. It's definitely true. What's definitely not true is the imagination I just pictured. For most of us in this room, when I say you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you, we picture a courtroom. And Jesus is this courtroom official deciding who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's clean, who's unclean. But the problem with that is that the word judge in Hebrew is not a courtroom official. It's shofet, which means defender. Psalm 84, God is the judge of the orphan. Why is God judging orphans, you guilty orphans? No, right? It means he's defending them, right? My, my Sunday school teacher, when I was seven, told me, one day you'll stand in front of Jesus, and he's going to put your life on a giant movie screen for everybody to look at, right? Which, if you're over 40, you heard some version of that, which leads to all kinds of questions like, how boring can you make heaven? My life's not that interesting now. You mean heaven is sitting around watching people's lives, picking out the flaws? That would be frankly horrible. 13.7 billion people have lived and died with an average lifespan of 50 years. That means the first 650 billion years of eternity is watching people's lives. That would be terrible. Strap in, everybody. Next up, Methuselah, right? No. Come on. It's got to be better than that. And how mentally unhinged do you have to be to say yes to a relationship to someone who tells you beforehand they're going to shame you? See, the problem isn't the words. The problem is the imagination. In Hebrew, judge was somebody that was specially anointed by God to set you free. And you already knew that. There's a whole book in the Bible called the book of Judges. These people aren't courtroom officials. They're people anointed by God to set you free. So when I say you'll stand in front of Jesus and he'll judge you, what I mean is one day you'll be in the presence of the one finally and fully anointed by God to set you free. And that's a good thing. In that sense, I want you to be the most judgmental church in Albany. I want you to be people willing to engage people's broken stories in order to make a better narrative out of that story. Not to hurt them, criticize them, or shame them, or condemn them, but to involve ourselves in the broken story in order to make a better narrative. So in that note, it leads me to Jesus. So Jesus is this awesome, awesome, awesome person. I want to proclaim this because it's obvious, but just in case I need to say it, I'll say it. Um, I affirm the divinity of Christ. I think the fullness of God is revealed in Jesus incarnate. I think the whole New Testament can be summed up in this statement that God was like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do. I take the divinity of Christ so seriously that I wrote a 10-part curriculum on Christology on the, on the implications of Jesus being fully divine. And it's so important to me. It's out there on that table. Please pick it up after the service. But I also affirm that Jesus was fully human. Orthodox Christianity has said from the beginning that Jesus was fully divine and that Jesus was fully human. And my fear is, is that the human Jesus doesn't get enough playtime. I don't think we talk about the human Jesus enough. And here you might, you might be thinking, what difference does that make? Let me tell you why it matters. Because if we only think of Jesus as God, it's very easy to rationalize not living how he taught us to live. It goes like this. Come on now. Jesus taught us to treat our enemies better than that. Jesus taught us to see ourselves as the plank and them as the speck. To see ourselves as the bigger problem and them as the smaller problem. Come on now. Jesus taught us to be better than that. And you're like, I know. I know, but he was God. That was easy for him. Mm, no, he was also fully human. And I want to talk to you about the human Jesus tonight 
Not because the divine Jesus doesn't matter. It matters so much. There's 10 hours of teaching on the table about it. But because when you're in one place for one moment, for one time, for 35 minutes, you got to pick one. And I don't want to talk about the human Jesus at the expense of the divine Jesus. I want to talk to you about the human Jesus because I just don't think it gets enough playtime. And on earth, Jesus was a rabbi. How do I know he was a rabbi? Because they called him rabbi. I know. Boom, right? And, and a rabbi was a special title. It was only given to three people in the whole Bible. Jesus, Paul, Gamaliel. You never see that title given to anybody else. You never see Rabbi Peter, Rabbi James, Rabbi John. No, 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 no. You see Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Gamaliel. And there was a reason for that. It was the highest honor in all of Israel to be called a rabbi. The most simple reason is because in a world where only 3% of people could read, to be the one trusted to tell the truth about what is written in the scrolls, that matters. It meant we trust you to be honest with what Scripture says. That's why anytime Jesus showed up in any rural town, what did they do? Oh my goodness, a rabbi's here. Get him a scroll. Somebody is here who can read to us. Jesus was a rabbi. And a rabbi had disciples. People he was teaching how to live. Early on, Jesus' disciples were called people of the way. In the 300s, it got changed to Christianity because frankly, Christianity is easier to say than people of the way. But it wasn't people, it was people trying to see the world how Jesus saw it, to see God how Jesus saw God, and to apply Scripture the way Jesus applied Scripture. And I want to talk to you about that. So let's look at this. This is Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus calling the first four disciples. And it's frankly bizarre. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. If you're going to try to take notes, that's important. They were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. So that phrase, follow me, is really important. I'll send you out to fish for people. Now, can we all agree together that Jesus' um, sales pitch needs some work, right? It's just bizarre. Quit your job and come fish for people. That's strange, right? There's no details. The problem is it works. At once they left their nets and followed him. That's bizarre. Like, look, grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch just says, follow me? That's strange. If you're here tonight and you're married, how does that conversation go? Hey, sweetie, how was your day? Quit my job. What? Quit your job. Yep, quit my job. Why? This guy came by, told me to follow him. Thought it was a good idea. Where are you going? He didn't say. When are you coming back? He didn't say that either. He just said, follow him, so I left. That is bizarre. But it works. And then it keeps working over and over and over and over and over again. 12 for 12. And then he has other people saying, can I follow you too? And Jesus is like, not today. Which leads to all kinds of questions like, is there ever a moment Jesus doesn't want you following him? And what's happening here? He, here's the first two. Here's the next two. They're, they're at the same lake. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Grown men leaving everything they know to follow a guy whose sales pitch, frankly, needs some work. They leave their wives, their children, their jobs, their homes, their families, their communities, and their boats to follow a guy. 
here's the calling of the fifth disciple. It's a guy named Levi. They change his name to Matthew. But he's at the lake again. This is once again Jesus went beside the lake. And a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me. There's that weird phrase. Jesus told him and Levi got up and followed him. He goes 12 for 12 with a two-word sales pitch that has no detail, which should lead to this question, what is going on here? And when I learned this, it changed my life. It's singularly the most important thing I've ever learned in my walk with God, and I'd like to share it with you. Because no matter how many years I come back to Albany, this will always be the most important message I'll ever preach here, ever, 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 unless they just ask me to do this one over and over and over again. This will be the most important message I will ever preach at this church, and I hope it changes your life. Um, anytime I speak, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's going to be your experience here. See, to understand this, we've got to understand that the greatest honor in all of Israel was to be called a rabbi. But at the end of the day, only the best of 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 the best made it. It's kind of like this. How many boys in West Australia want to play in the AFL? All of them. How many are going to ever actually make it all the way to the AFL? Almost none of them, right? This is why almost every 45-year-old man in Albany has a back-in-the-day story, right? It's like, I was awesome back in the day, but then I hurt my knee, right? Right? And <clears throat> maybe, but more than likely, you just weren't good enough, right? And that's okay. Almost no one's good enough, right? At some point, everybody playing Aussie Rules football is told, I'm sorry, you don't have what it takes to play at the next level. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of 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 the best make it all the way to the West Coast Eagles and that kind of leak. It was like that. It was like that with being a rabbi. Everybody wanted to be one, but almost no one made it. So, I'm going to take three minutes here and quickly explain what it took to be a rabbi in Jesus' day. And you'll start to understand more about Jesus, hopefully, in this process, okay? All right, so first of all, only the best of 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 the best make it. So the first qualification for being a rabbi is you had to memorize Leviticus before the age of six, okay? So if you memorized Leviticus by the age of six, you qualified to go to school. If you did not memorize Leviticus by the age of six, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best memorize Leviticus by age six. If you memorize Leviticus by the age of six, you qualify to go to school. Let me show you the names of the schools here that are gonna come up now. The first school was called the Bet Safar. Now, the Bet Safar just literally translates the school of the book. It lasted from 6 to 12, and you had to memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So from 6 to 12, you memorize the entire Torah. Now, if you did that, you qualified to take an exam, which leads to this question. If to qualify to take the exam, you had to memorize the whole book, what could you possibly be tested on, right? Well, your Torah exam was based on your ability to ask questions about the Scriptures, not give answers about the Scripture. Just to take the test, you had to prove you'd memorized the whole Bible, right? Think about your Bible. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was wowing the teachers of the law with his questions. Now, if you wowed the teachers of the law with your questions, you got to go to the next school. The next school was called the Bet Talmud. 
the Bet Tell Mid. Now, the Bet Tell Mid, if not, you were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn a living at your family trade. But the best of the best of the best graduate to the Bet Tell Mid. The Bet Tell Mid lasted for 18 years. It was five stages long. For the sake of time and relevance, we'll call them stage one, two, three, four, five. And the idea was is if you graduate from stage one, you get to go to stage, yes, two, then two to three, three to four, four to five. It lasted from 12 to 30. It was 18 years long. If you ever wondered why Jesus disappeared from 12 to 30, and then at 30, he reappears, and everyone's calling him rabbi. This is why, all right? So at any point, if you failed, you're disqualified from ministry, go back and earn a living at your family trade. The best of the best of the best of the best of the best, make it to stage five of the bet tell mid. Now, stage five is where I'm gonna park for a second because it's the most important word I'm gonna teach you tonight. Let me show you this word, next slide. So the word is samika. Now, this is, yeah, very good, very good. Somebody's got this. All right, so I want you to practice this with some Go Albany Gusto. I know it's my first time here, and I, but I want, not in a way that shows you, but, but like energy, right? And the word sounds like this, samika. Okay, so ready, go. Samika. All right, it's very good. Let's do it one more time with just 10% more energy. Let's try that. Ready, go. Samika, perfect amount of energy. Now, if you want to sound Jewish, you got to put a little thing at the end. It goes like this, all right, all right, so everybody practice that little thing. It's just three, two, one. Very good, very good, very good. Let's try that again just because it's fun. Three, two, one. Now what we're going to do is we're going to mix those two things together. It sounds like this. Samika. All right, let's try that. Ready, go. Samika. All right, so. Samika was a word that it means authority. So there was two types of rabbis. There were rabbis without Samika. And there were rabbis with Samika. Now, a rabbi without authority was a rabbi just the same. He just had to teach the, the scripture the way his rabbi taught him. But, but if you were a rabbi with authority, you could make up your own way of teaching scripture. You could start your own movement, in other words. A, a rabbi's way of teaching scripture was called his yoke. A rabbi's yoke was a summary statement on what he allowed, what he forbidden, what he bound, what he loosed. It, it was, uh, what's work on Sabbath? When can you divorce? When can you not divorce? This was a rabbi's yoke. And so if you were a rabbi without authority, you had to teach the scripture the same way your rabbi taught you. But if you were rabbi with authority, you could make up your own yoke. You could start your own movement. So that every yoke in Israel was somehow traced back to some rabbi with authority. Now, here's how they determined who had authority or who had Samika and who didn't, right? You, when you graduated from rabbi school, they baptized you. The reason is because they baptized you anytime you change social status, right? So if you go from single to engaged, they baptize you. You go from unclean to clean, they baptized you, right? So think about your Bible. When Jesus was 30 years old, he went out to the desert to be baptized by John. Now, at your baptism, you had to have two verbal witnesses to your authority to be considered a rabbi with authority. Let's think about your Bible, right? Jesus, 30 years old. He goes out to the desert to be baptized by John, and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the whole world, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Witness one, John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water as a normal, regular rabbi until a second voice speaks. 
this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was thunder and lightning and birds and rainbows. It's almost like the father was saying, if no one else is gonna speak up, I will. And Jesus comes up out of the water, not just as a rabbi, but a rabbi with Samika. Which means he can now make up his own yoke. And Jesus spent the rest of his life wrecking everybody else's yoke. Think about your Bible. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. And my, the key to that phrase is my. For Jesus to say my yoke, he had to have authority. Think about it. You do not teach as the other rabbis teach, but you teach as one with authority or Samika. You teach as one. And the, the issue wasn't he was yelling. The issue was he was saying something new. Hey, 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 hey my, my yoke is easy. My, how do you, Jesus' first sermon ever was called the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because it was so well attended, he had to climb a hill to get away from the people. Like how? Like I've been preaching for years and you're a right nice looking look group of people, don't get me wrong, but I hardly have to climb a mountain to get away from you. How do you, how do you draw that crowd on your first sermon? Well, the rumor gets around that there's a new rabbi with Samika and his yoke is easy and his burden is lighter than everything they've ever heard before. They're gonna come from everywhere to hear this new yoke. Now, <clears throat> once a rabbi graduated, the first thing he would do is he had to go get disciples. Now think about it, think about it. That was a really quick synopsis there, but think about it. Where would the new 30-year-old rabbis go find disciples? Well, you'd go to the Bet Talmud and you would find pre-vetted 12-year-old guys who had proven their intelligence, they proved their passion, they proved their determination, they proved all this, they'd memorized the scripture. So you didn't have to ask, were they intelligent, were they disciplined, were they knowledgeable, they'd memorized the whole Bible. The only thing the new rabbi had to ask was, do I believe they could do greater things than me? And if I believe they could do greater things than me, I would ordain them into my rabbi school with two words, follow me. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. Every Hebrew boy wanted to hear the words of a rabbi say, follow me. But almost all of them were told, I'm sorry, you're disqualified from ministry. Go back and earn your living at your family trade. But this new rabbi, he doesn't go to the Bet Talmud and find disciples. Where does he go? He goes to the lake. And who does he find? Fishermen. Hang on a second. If they were fishermen, what does that mean? It means they've been disqualified. And he stands on the bank and says, Simon, Andrew, James, John, follow me. And they're jumping out of boats for the opportunity. Why? Because they had been disqualified by the establishment. But the yoke of our rabbi qualifies disqualified people. <clears throat> that is the yoke of our rabbi. This would be like a 34-year-old washed-up AFL player from Albany getting a call from an AFL team saying, we got a spot for you. He's leaving everything to go give that a go. Oh, oh wait a minute, hold on. First four disciples, what was their job? Fisherman. Fifth disciple, what was his job? Tax collector. Where did he find him? At the lake. Hold on. If you're the tax collector at the lake, who have you been taxing? Fish, Yeah. We're gonna find out right now if you four have what it takes to follow me. Can you forgive the guy that's been robbing from you for years and let's go change the world? That is the yoke of our rabbi. Now, once a rabbi had his disciples, they did walking training. This was quite literal, actually. You would, you would learn to walk. Jewish historians say you could always tell which disciples belonged to which rabbi by how they walked. 
Remember, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple by, by how you walk. It was quite literal. It was, it was, you wanted to, it makes me wonder if there wasn't a first century rabbi with like a limp, right? But you'd want to walk just like your rabbi. And you could always tell who the best student of the day was. The best student of the day got to be the line leader, right? And you could always tell who that was because the rabbis wore these special shoes and it would throw up dust and dirt and it would cover the student from the waist down. But this wasn't dust you wanted to wipe off. It was dust you wanted to show off. It was an honor to be covered in the dust of your rabbi because it was telling the world, I'm the one following the closest behind him. So you'd go back to temple, synagogue, whatever, and you wouldn't what you do. You'd hope people noticed. You'd be like, hey man, check out my dust. It was like awesome. It was a way to show the world you were following the closest behind him. Remember there's this one time, Jesus teaches his disciples how to act when people don't accept you. They say, oh, what do we do when people reject us? And what does Jesus say? Call down fire from heaven and destroy them. Make horribly constructed memes and put it on social media aimed at them. No. He says, no, no, no. Uh, if somebody doesn't accept you, shake the dust off your feet. In Jesus' world, that was a blessing. In other words, if they reject you, find anything you can do to bless them back, even if it's just the dirt off your feet. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The truth of it is, is we'll either be covered in the dust of our rabbi or we'll be covered in the dust of our own issues, the dust of our mom, the dust of our dad, or my personal favorite, the dust of that's just what I was always taught, as if that's going to stand the test of time. The hope for West Australia, Australia, and the world is children of God living by the yoke of Jesus Christ. I think, I think a question every Christian should ask is this question. If the whole world converted to how I think about God, would the world be better? And if the world's not better, there's a problem with how we're thinking about God. I, a prayer I'm praying every day, and I would, I would ask you to pray it with me is, Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. People don't reject Jesus. People do reject the image of Jesus presented to them. And that's our responsibility. Because here's the thing. Unless you've been given special Samika, thank you. Let's try that again. Unless you've been given special Samika, and you haven't, and I haven't. We have to live and teach the yoke of Jesus. We can't change his yoke, call it Christianity, and wonder why people reject it. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple by your love, not by your opinion about climate, or sex, or health, or politics, or doom. They'll know you're my disciple because of your love for one another. What's a Christian? It's someone whose biggest flag is their belief in Jesus as evidenced by their love for their fellow man. Which leads me to this question. Have we changed Jesus' yoke? Like, like there's this one time. Jesus has an encounter with a lady caught in the act of adultery. Like in the act. In the act, right? Now you guys know your Bible. Flip, it's Tuesday night, you're in church. You know what the Bible says to do to someone caught in that kind of sin? What do you do? Stoner, exactly. Exactly what you do. It's in the Bible. By the way, that's in context too. They take this lady, they throw her at Jesus' feet. Now I wanna make sure you're paying attention. 
Why do they need Jesus? They need someone with authority. Right. So they throw her at Jesus' feet and they say, Jesus, the Torah says stoner. What's your yoke say? We have a Bible verse. You want to be biblical or not? And Jesus is in a conundrum. He wants, doesn't want to stone the lady, but they have a point. There is a verse. And then he teaches all of his followers everywhere how to handle stuff like that. Here's what he does. He says, you know what? You're right. The Torah says stoner. So I say stoner. There, I've kept it. Oh, but also, wait a minute. I have Samika, which means I can make up my own yoke. Uh, the Torah says stoner, so my yoke says stoner. But my yoke also says you can't throw stones unless you're perfect. <laughs> this is Rabbi Kung Fu, right? And it says that everybody gets tired of holding their stones. And they walk away. And then Jesus says to the lady, where are your accusers? Not what did you do, not to, where are your accusers? She says, oh, they're not here. He says, great, then neither do I condemn you. Why? Because the Torah says you have to stone someone caught in the act of adultery. But it also says you have to have two witnesses to condemn somebody. Jesus couldn't make her sin go away, so he simply made the witnesses go away, which automatically declares a mistrial. That is the yoke of our rabbi. What was Jesus' response to someone caught in a sex sin? Was it to proclaim their condemnation with poorly constructed memes? No. Was it to stone the lady? No. Did they have a verse to prove it? Yes. Jesus taught us something better. You don't obsess about being right about singular verses. You do something more profound, which is to fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And in so doing, Jesus taught his followers to fulfill scripture and not simply be right about it. That is the yoke of our rabbi. The yoke of our rabbi caught someone in the act of a sin and said, I don't condemn you. Could your yoke do that? My yoke couldn't. I grew up in an old school Pentecostal holiness church. The thing doesn't even exist in Australia. My grandmother died at 92 and never cut her hair in her life, never wore makeup in her life, never wore jewelry in her life, never went to the movies in her life. If she knew I was going to the movie, she'd pray the whole time I was in there that God wouldn't come back while I was in the movie because God wouldn't go to the movie to get me. <laughs> that. And three different times in my life, this is what I heard, I saw it. Three different times in my life, they made people come to the front of the church and shame them for their sin. And those people left the church. And then the church said, oh, they rejected Jesus. No, they didn't. They rejected that image of Jesus. That's not the yoke of our rabbi. That's the yoke of some jacked up white dude from 1880 with severe daddy issues, okay? That is not the yoke of Jesus. They rejected that image of Jesus and that image of Jesus should be rejected. Oh man, there's this one time. It says Jesus went by a prostitute's house which leads to all kinds of questions like, is Jesus allowed to do that, you know? Um, by the way, if I ask you if Jesus is allowed to do something, the answer is, is yes. All right, let's practice that. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Yes. It also leads to this question, is there a worse place ever to run into Jesus? <laughs> like Jesus is between customers, you know? He's, he's, in the, he's in the foyer and he's in between, you imagine being the guy coming out of the back room, you know? The guy's like, Oh, Jesus. <laughs> hey, man. 
And, and, and it says that the prostitute was so moved by his compassion that she knelt down and washed his feet with her hair. And Jesus said, that's it. All your sins are now forgiven. Is Jesus allowed to do that? No sacrifice, no sinner's prayer, no altar call, no Romans 10, 9, and 10. I know, that, um, I know that some people are surprised that anyone got saved before the book of Romans was written, <laughs> but they did. <laughs> what do you see in Jesus? You move one millimeter towards him, he's moving the rest of the way towards you. That is the yoke. One time Jesus is having a really bad day, and he ends up on a cross in severe stress. That's a really bad day. I mean, I don't like it. Like I wasn't. Anyway, the guy next to him is having an equally bad day. And um, he can't breathe. The guy next to him can't breathe. It's part of the crucifixion thing. He can't breathe. And all he could do is get three words out. He says, please remember me. And what does Jesus say? That's it. Today. Today's your day. Aren't you glad Jesus wasn't some semi-ghettoized evangelical, you know? Like, please remember me. Well, Bo, you better pray the sinner's prayer or they're not gonna think you're saved in 2023. Well, sinner's prayer, what's that? It's this prayer they make up in 1830 to help people connect with me. I dig it. What's it based on? It's based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. What's that? It's a book that hasn't been written yet, but you better hurry up, bro. <laughs> the yoke of Jesus is better than that. One millimeter towards Jesus. Jesus is running the rest of the way towards him. You know, the yoke of our rabbi was in the Old Testament too. There's this great passage. We're not gonna turn to it or anything, but it's in the book of Hebrews. It's Hebrews chapter, it's like all these heroes of the faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Samson. By faith. Look, go read their stories. They all made mistakes with zeros attached to it. Abraham gave his wife to Pharaoh's harem and greatly profited from Egyptian influence while she was stuck in there. Isaac did something similar. Moses was a premeditated murderer. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. Problem was the next day the sand shifted. You got this leg sticking out of the sand. If Abraham was available to preach here next Sunday, would you welcome him? Or would we talk about his past? How about Moses? Good. Moses, premeditated murder, God's like, you know what? I'm gonna requalify you. I think you could write the foundation of all scripture. Samson was doing unspeakable things. Unspeakable. Samson lost a bet and killed 30 people. That's unspeakable. By faith, Samson. David had 700 women. 700. 700. <laughs> David was dating the entire town of Denmark. That's right. You know there are Christian denominations that according to their written bylaws would never have David preach on their stage because of what he did. But they'll open a book David wrote, call it the word of God and fail to see the irony in that. Come on, we're changing the yoke. By faith, Solomon. Solomon had a thousand women. A thousand women. Like, that's the entire suburb of Gosnell's. Imagine that conversation. Excuse me, sir. Are you the guy that successfully navigated the affections of a thousand women? I am. You got to be the smartest guy on earth. <laughs> Let's write a book together. 
The yoke of our rabbi was always qualifying disqualified people. Yeah, I could talk about the yoke of Jesus all night. I really love it. And I truly believe that if the whole world converted to Jesus' way, the world would be better. I'm not talking about what Christians have made of it. I'm talking about if the whole world converted to how Jesus saw the world, how Jesus saw God, how Jesus applied to I think the world would obviously be a better place. And I could talk about it all night, but if you get hungry, you'll turn on me. And, um, and I promise you we wouldn't be here too late. And I've gotta be at the airport at 5.30 in the morning. So I'm gonna pick two more stories. One from the Bible and the other from my personal life. So there's this quick line in Matthew. It says, so Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's a real quick throwaway line, but, it, but it's not. Caesarea Philippi was an hour, it, it's an hour and 10 minutes drive from where Jesus lived today in a motor car on a paved road. It, it would be like purposely walking from here to Esperance or something. It's like you wouldn't, you wouldn't just you know, meander on by Caesarea Philippi, okay? And it was the place no Christian would go. Whatever the worst thing going on in Albany tonight is, it's Nickelodeon compared to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, by the way, never buy into the idea the world's getting worse. That's not true. It's not true. There's nothing worse than 100 years ago. Nothing, nothing. And there's definitely nothing worse than the Roman Empire. Come on. There's nothing worse than 100 years ago except pollution. Pollution's worse and divorce rates are worse. But divorce rates are worse because we're living longer. In Jesus' day, they died at 32. So till death do us part was frankly more doable. Now you gotta live with them to 84. It's a whole thing. <clears throat> Caesarea Philippi was not someplace you'd go. It was the headquarters of the worship of the goat god Pan. As a matter of fact, today, it's no longer called Caesarea Philippi. It's called Panaya, the city of Pan. I, I've been there, and I, I took a photo of the center of town. If you could throw that photo up there for me. This is the center of Caesarea Philippi. If you're wondering why that photo is of such high quality, it's because I took it myself. <laughs> That's right. Photographers everywhere are trying to get strangers' arms <laughs> in the bottom left of their photos. I nailed it. So this is the center of Caesarea Philippi. Um, there are children in this room, so I'm going to talk in code, okay? I want to be historically accurate, but I do not want to be gross in any way, okay? The goat god Pan was a goat who received worship through outdoor expressions of fertility rituals. That's pretty good, now come on. <laughs> right over there. Uh, there's a sign there right now, that it, it says it's the court of Pan and the Nymphos, right? So there's some code, all right? And, and that, that, that cave was called the entrance and exit to hell. And, and here's what they did, is the priest of Pan said, if you don't worship Pan properly, by assaulting underclassed people and making them debase themselves, then Pan will open up that cave and swallow you into hell. Jesus took his youth group on a missions trip there. <laughs> I'd have been fired for sure. And it's all disorienting. Could you imagine the horror? This was not illegal. This was government-sanctioned horror in the middle of town. And Jesus has to focus his disciples. He's like, Peter, 
Right here, bro. Right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter shakes it off. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And upon this rock, we'll build a church. And not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Jesus went to the grossest place you can possibly imagine. And he doesn't call them out for their sin. He says, you're acting like that because you're scared of this. And Jesus stood over the gates of hell and said, bring it on. That is the yoke of our rabbi. Have we changed his yoke? I used to kickbox. I was awesome at it back in the day. And my knee. I won the Southeastern Regionals two years in a row that qualified me for the U.S. Open. I placed high enough in the U.S. Open to qualify for the NASCAR World Championships. Um, I could fight. It, not today's kind of fighting, though. It was more karate kid sort of fighting. Stop, point. Now they take you to the ground and pull your arm off. It's just different. Um, I'd get killed today, in other words. But I, I was good back then. And we came back from the U.S. Open, and my mom was one of these proud moms that you, anybody old enough to remember like the VHS recorder you held on your shoulder? Like the Beverly Goldberg. My mom had one of those and there was a library of videos to my honor. And she'd come back, she had filmed the US Open fight and all my, she'd invited all my friends over um, to come watch the US Open fight. Well, there was a guy in my neighborhood named Kenneth Brown. Kenneth Brown is a freak of nature. I am six foot two, 87 kilos as I stand before you today. Kenneth Brown was six foot two, 95 kilos in the eighth grade. He was one of these freaks of nature. When we were in fourth grade together, we would go to recess, he would shave, okay? It never occurred to me he failed five times. I just thought we were in the same grade, we were the same age, and that was Kenneth. And Kenneth showed up and said, Shay Willard, I think I can whoop you. I took one look at him, I said, I think you're right. He said, no, I'm serious, I want to fight. I said, I'm not fighting you, bro. You're twice my size. He said, no, I bought boxing gloves to prove I could whoop you. And I said, boxing gloves? Hang on, so we're going to put our hand in a mitt and you can't take me to the ground? Yeah, we can do that. You said fight. What you meant was box. That's two different things, right? So we went out, and you could picture this, all the friends made a ring, you know, fight, fight, fight. And I got in the ring with Kenneth Brown, and I beat him half to death. I was fast. He was slow. I was skilled. He was not. I couldn't hurt him, he's huge, just in and out, you know, pop, 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 right? I frustrated him, and he decided to try to end the fight with one punch. He threw a right cross. The problem was, the way he threw the right cross was so slow. It was like, <laughs> I actually had time to think, I'll move now. When he, when he finished the punch, he left himself in this position. And I thought, well, that's it. And never before nor since have I hit a human being this hard. It was a perfect shot. If you know anything about striking, it's called striking from the ground. You don't strike with small muscles. Big muscles lead small muscles, right? It was a perfect shot from the ground, everything working right, everything tight, right on the base of his chin. Bam! His head snapped back. I just stood over him like this, waiting for him to fall. I never hit anybody that hard. He took three steps back and... He caught his balance, and now he's mad. 
His face turned red. And he said, boy, is that all you got? And it was. <laughs> How many of you know when you hit someone with your best shot and they're still coming, you lose? I forfeited that day because I hit someone as hard as I could and they were still coming at me. You know, the apostle Paul said that the yoke of our rabbi was put on a public display at the cross. Oh, pray for your enemies. Bless those who despitefully use you. Oh, don't just love your friends, love your enemies. Bless those people, bless to the merciful. Oh, forgive everybody before the sun goes down. Really, really? How about 39 lashes? How about a crown of thorns? How about some nails in your feet and your hand? How about we put you 18 inches off the ground and let people spit and mock and scourge you? How about that? How about that? Can you live by your, your own rules? Can you live by your own moral authority? Can you do that? You said to do it. Can you do it under stress? And they beat him 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 and he kept loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving and loving and forgiving all the way to the point of death. That's why any message of Jesus is like if you don't do something, Jesus is gonna. No, that's not the message of Jesus. It doesn't matter if there's a 25 foot cross over the top of the building. You can have a 25 foot cross over the top of the building and still miss the point of the cross. They beat him and they beat him and he kept loving and forgiving and loving all the way to the point of death. And Jesus died. And where did Jesus go when he died? Well, no one knows. How would you know? Except for the fact that evidently he told Peter that when he died, he went to hell and he preached to the dead that were there. Interesting. Here's the way I picture it, that Jesus walked into hell and looked Satan right in the eye and said, boy, is that all you got? Was that your best shot? You thought you could destroy my yoke by killing me? No way. I'm stuck here for three days. I'm going to preach the whole time. And you know what? When I rise from the dead, the thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go cook breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied me in my time of need. And I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm going to ask him if he still loves me. And if he still loves me after all this, we're going to go change the world. Because the yoke of our rabbi is love saves the day. Which leads me to this question. Tuesday night people in church, you're disciples of Jesus. I don't question that. My question is, have we changed his yoke? Is there any place that people are rejecting Jesus because of the way we're presenting Jesus? Maybe we need to stop and pause and ask God, would you show us any place I've changed your yoke? Please forgive me. I have no right. And give me the courage to see the world how you do, to see God how you do, and to apply scripture the way you do. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your night. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. I hope you laughed a bit. I hope you cried a bit. I hope you removed a bit. I hope Jesus just exploded in your mind a whole, whole lot. Um, I bless you to know that you serve a God that believes in you more than you believe in him. I bless you to know he's entrusted you with his yoke for this city, this country, and ultimately the world. I bless you to be people who carry that yoke well. But more than anything, more than anything at all, may each and every one of you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Thank you for listening to the Oceans Church podcast. For more information, visit oceans.church.